0: Thanks Mark. Uh, Good morning. Uh, It's good to be with you. As Mark said, my name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors uh, and happy 2023. Happy New Year. I wasn't here last Sunday, so let me say happy 2023 to to you. Uh, A lot happened in the first week of 2023. Uh, Maybe you traveled and you came back home and you're getting settled back in. Uh, maybe you're crushing your New Year's resolutions uh, already, or maybe you've already given up on your New Year's resolutions. Uh, as you heard earlier, we've launched sign-ups for city groups, uh, and in a serious way, I want to say this is a this is a great way to connect more deeply into the life of our church. If if you're not connected, I would encourage you to sign up. Now is a great time to do so. Uh, for uh, others of you, your children started back to school. Uh, some of you maybe saw the drama. Of Congress played out before our eyes as they endured 15 differing votes to finally arrive at Speaker of the House. But I think probably the top story, one of the top stories, at least, of this past week, was what happened uh, to Buffalo Bills defensive back DeMar Hamlin, uh, who the doctors say is now uh, recovering and hopefully will fully recover. It happened on Monday Night Football. Millions of people watching, 24-year-old DeMar Hamlin uh, makes a tackle on T. Higgins, wide receiver for Cincinnati Bengals, and as he's getting up from the tackle... He takes a few steps and then completely collapses onto the field. And if you were watching it on TV, you could tell this was not a routine injury because players from both teams uh, immediately are in tears. And it was a scary moment. And we now know that DeMar Hamlin went into cardiac arrest, that his heart completely stopped. And within 10 seconds, the medical teams on the field, they're beginning CPR, providing oxygen, and, and thankfully his heart started pumping again. Within a matter of seconds, breath was breathed into him that caused him to come alive. Damar Hamlin was revived on the football field that night. We've anchored ourselves this ministry here in the prayer of Psalm 85, verse 6. Revive us again, O Lord. If you were here last week, Timothy preached a great sermon on Psalm 85, and we're praying that God would revive us, turn us back to finding true life in our our life with God and in his kingdom. We are praying that God would breathe his life into us. As the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel says, that God would cause these dry bones to come alive, that he would revive us. Well, how's this going to happen, Christ central Is it through well-planned, you know, crafted planning, strategic leadership? Is it by ensuring smooth-running Sunday services with excellent music? Maybe it's motivating you with just the right amount of shame and guilt to get you to do a little bit more and serve just a little bit more. I want to give you one word that is the answer to how God will revive us. Grace grace as God pouring out his grace it, it is us as his people receiving grace that will cause us to come alive and be transformed as he breathes his life into our very lives and I believe as this happens in our personal lives God will cause a corporate reviving God by his grace will revive his church and through his church bring healing to neighborhoods and workplaces and cities and nations in the world now this word grace, it gets thrown around a lot if you've been around the church, which I think is a good thing. It's a great word, grace. It's a biblical word, but I don't know if we always know what it means when we hear it or maybe even when we say it. And so I want to give you a little bit of definition around this word grace. I want to read an excerpt from Paul Zoll's book, Grace and Practice. I really like this. This is what Paul Zoll writes. He says, what is grace? Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. Grace is a love that has nothing to do with you, the beloved. It has everything and only to do with the lover. Grace is irrational in the sense that it has nothing to do with weights and measures. It has nothing to do with my intrinsic qualities or so-called gifts, whatever they may be. It reflects a decision on the part of the giver, the one who loves in relation to the receiver, the one who is love, that negates any qualifications the receiver may personally hold. Grace is one-way love. And so for the next seven weeks, we're going to be in a sermon series titled, Revived by Grace, a study in the life of Jacob in the Old Testament book of Genesis, chapters 25 to 36. In the life of Jacob, it's a story of grace. I'm excited for us to be in this series together for the next Uh, Seven weeks, and we're going to see the one way love of God at work in unexpected ways in and through twisted people. I mean, this is a story filled with lying, deceit, double dealing, family dysfunction. It, It almost feels like you're watching an episode of Yellowstone or Succession, if you've seen any of those shows. I mean, this family is full of scandal, it's full of rascals. Yet for all the shortcomings and sin, there are moments in life when Jacob soars. He wrestles with God. And at the end of his life, God has transformed him and put him into a place where he lays his hand upon the the most powerful person in the world, Pharaoh, and blesses him. In the Bible, there are very few people that are as honored as Jacob. He'd be on the Mount Rushmore of the Old Testament if there was one. I mean, throughout the Bible, we hear that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Psalm 46, verse 7 says the God of Jacob is our strength. When the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary in Luke chapter 1, he told her that her child would be the Christ child and he would reign over the house of Jacob. It is through Jacob that the promise of salvation is carried into all the world. The story of Jacob is a story of sovereign grace at work in unexpected ways, in and through twisted people, in order to untwist lives and usher in salvation. This story has captured the imagination of God's people for 4,000 years. And I pray that it will capture our imagination as well. And so let's begin by looking this morning at the very beginning, Genesis 25, 19 to 34. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we look at the beginning of this story. This is God's word to us this morning. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padanaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man in the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. And Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him, sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The prophet Isaiah tells us the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God endures forever. Pray with me. Lord God, we need to hear from you this morning. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take your word and breathe life into us. That you would cause us personally and as a body to live, to find our life in you. And we pray that your one-way love would be poured out even now as we hear from you. Your grace would be made clear to our hearts and we might experience you, Jesus, this morning. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in this moment. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, our passage this morning, is a little bit like a trailer for a movie. It is a quick snapshot of the coming attraction. It forecasts what we see played out in greater detail as the life of Jacob unfolds in Genesis 25 to 36. God's sovereign grace at work in unexpected ways, in and through twisted people, in order to untwist lives, in order to transform lives and usher in salvation. I want us to consider two things this morning uh, as we look at the introduction to this Jacob story. The first is Jacob's family dynamics. And second is Jacob's character. Let's look first at Jacob's family dynamics. Family dynamics are interesting, aren't they? Many of us just spent Christmas or New Year's with family. And there are all kinds of dynamics at play in our families. And when you bring a group of people together, a family who are all different, who live within a spoken and an unspoken system, it can cause joy and it can cause some friction. That's why my mom jokingly says family coming together is like fish. It begins to smell after three days, which also gives you a little insight into Mason family dynamics, right? (laughs) But let's look at Jacob's family dynamics. Verse 19 says, These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son." The Hebrew word for generations is the word Toledot. And when Toledot is used in the book of Genesis, it is signaling a new episode in the life of God's people. And the author of Genesis uses Toledot ten times in order to organize and to tell the story of God's people. And it's used here in verse 9 to tell us that the episode and the story of Jacob is beginning. And we're reminded of the father and grandfather of Jacob. Jacob's grandfather is the great Abraham. The hero of the faith. Father Abraham, the one in whom God promised, through you, Abraham, will all the nations of the earth be blessed. And so I'm sure for Jacob, grandfather Abraham loomed large in the family. Jacob's father is Isaac. He's the one that Abraham was willing to sacrifice to God On Mount Moriah, Genesis 22 tells us that Abraham raises his knife to kill his son. And at that very moment, God provides a ram in the thicket as a sacrifice instead. And scripture tells us that Abraham was walking by faith in that moment. But can you imagine the child Isaac wondering what's happening? No telling what's happening on Isaac's insides. And I'm sure that created all kind of father-son dynamics for them for the rest of their lives. And we also learn about Jacob's parents' marriage, Isaac and Rebekah. One of Abraham's servants goes to Padan meets Rebekah, and brings her to meet Isaac. And for Isaac, it's love at first sight. And they get married immediately. And verse 20 tells us that Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah. And they had this beautiful beginning to their marriage. Then the trial of infertility comes their way. Verse 21 tells us that Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. I mentioned a few weeks ago in a sermon that being barren was a source of shame for women in the ancient Near East, and it was believed to be a curse from God. And I can only imagine Isaac questioning how would his lineage go forth? I mean, the promise of salvation to the, to the nations was through Abraham, thus through Isaac. How is this going to happen? And so Isaac prays. And it says that Rebekah, his wife, conceived, which makes it seem like, like, like she conceived immediately. But verse 26 tells us that Isaac was 60 years old when she bore the twins. Isaac faithfully prayed for 20 years. Isaac waited on God for 20 years, and then she conceived. I don't know the pain of infertility, But I've seen the pain that it has brought to many of you as you've experienced it or are experiencing it, and it's heart-wrenching. Isaac and Rebecca experienced this pain for 20 years. Pain and suffering have the power to draw people close or to drive a wedge between. It can bond people together, or bitterness can bubble up in the heart that leads to drifting apart. And I've seen infertility do both of these in people's marriages. I've seen pain and suffering do both in relationships, not just marriage, but in relationship of children to parent, in friendships. Here when the pains of this world come bearing down upon us, they can either draw people together or drive a wedge between. Now, our text doesn't explicitly tell us, but I think we can deduce that both happened in the marriage of Isaac and Rebecca. Perhaps at first it drew them together. I mean, they're newlyweds in love, they're longing for a family, they're trusting God for some years as they pray and as they wait, but a rift occurred because somewhere along the lines they drifted apart. Rebecca's pregnant, two children are struggling in her womb, this is a forecast of a struggle that we're going to see played out between Esau and Jacob, and Rebecca cries out, why Lord is this happening to me? You can hear her pain. She's already had 20 years of infertility. Why more pain? And God tells her, two nations are in your womb. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Esau's the first, the oldest son. Jacob is the youngest. And then verse 28 tells us that Isaac loves Esau. Rebecca loves Jacob. They are playing favorites. And this favoritism reveals the wedge in their marriage. Listen to me. If you're not transformed by the pain that comes your way, it will spill out into other relationships. And do you see the the family dynamics that Jacob was born into? I want you to hear this. It is God's sovereign grace at work that brings Jacob into this family. Jacob did not choose this family. And neither do we choose our families. All of us are born into a family and every single one of us have differing family dynamics. But God is at work in all of our lives. And so I want to give you two applications here under family dynamics. Here's the first application. God is at work in failures. Uh, here's, Here's like a, if you didn't know, alert. No family is perfect. All families have dysfunction and brokenness. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca were not always faithful. They dropped the ball in regards to marriage and parenting, yet God's grace was still poured out. All of our parents made mistakes. And if we have children, we will make mistakes. We are all recipients of mistakes and perpetrators of mistakes, yet God brings his grace to bear, especially in the places of failure. God has a way of transforming us into places of pain, and is even gracious to transform those we've caused pain. Jacob's father Isaac doesn't have much written about him, shared about him in the book of Genesis. Many scholars think that's because he, he was faithless and departed from trusting God his, the, at the end of his life. But but Isaac was faithful in a way that his father Abraham was not. Abraham's wife Sarah was also barren. They, they also struggled with infertility. And they didn't pray and wait like Isaac and Rebekah. They took matters into their own hands. Abraham slept with Sarah's maidservant, Hagar. She gives birth to Ishmael. Later, God would bless them with Isaac. But somehow, Isaac and Rebekah learned to remain faithful where Father Abraham had been unfaithful. How, How did that happen? I like to imagine that Abraham was honest about his failures and owned them as such. And that he pointed his son Isaac to the only one who is faithful all the time. That as Isaac grew up, Abraham would remind him, hey son, your mom and I didn't trust God. We we took matters into our own hands and it led to a lot of pain. And then Abraham would model repentance before his son and model rejoicing in God's grace. For all the many ways that we've, all been failed by others and will fail others. These are opportunities for us to experience the one-way love of God. His grace being poured out in times of weakness. We all bear wounds from our parents. And if we have children, we will inflict wounds. But cheer up. God works in and through failure. And so let me say this to parents, myself, among, among you. What our children need are not perfect parents who do no wrong and make them feel like they can do no wrong. Rather, they need parents who can admit they failed and that they need the grace of Jesus. Children don't need to be told right behavior all the time. They need to see us model repentance. They need to hear us ask for forgiveness and to see us rejoicing in God's grace. Here's the second application I want to give under family dynamics is that God is at work, especially in families. I mean, from the beginning of the Bible, God promises to pour out his grace and salvation on and through families, which means our very real enemy, the devil, wants to attack the family. Genesis chapter 3, the enemy drives a wedge between Eve and Adam. Genesis chapter 4, the enemy leads a brother to kill a brother. The enemy knows that the family deeply matters to God, which is why he wants sin to be the air the family breathes rather than the grace of God. Now, some of you have really painful stories about your families, deep wounds and trauma that's been inflicted upon you. And so I tread lightly, not knowing all of your stories. But I do think that our text encourages us to see how God is faithful to pour out grace through the pain of Jacob's family. And he can do the same for you. I mean, Jacob's dad did not love him. Talk about a dad wound. That's a real dad wound. But by the end of the Jacob story, we will see that God uses this very brokenness to make Jacob who he called him to be. God has sovereignly given you your family. I know it's not perfect. There's dysfunction. But it's the perfect family for you. And God offers you grace to work through the pains and the hurts. And he wants to bring healing where you've been hurt. And so I want to encourage all of you this morning to seek to forgive where you've been wronged and ask God to heal. Frederick Buechner wrote in his book, Wishful Thinking, anger is the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll your tongue over the prospect of bitter confrontations yet to come, to savor the last toothsome morsel of the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Brothers and sisters, do not use your pain to justify your sin. Allow God to transform you or else you will transmit your pain to others. God pours out his grace in and through families and the enemy wants to attack the family, but God wants to use the family. We're not only given an introduction to the dynamics of Jacob's family, we're also given an introduction here to the character of Jacob, which is my second point. Verse 24 tells us that the twins are born, and Esau, the hairy monster, is born first. Jacob is fast on his heels, born the youngest. Esau is a skilled hunter, loves to be outside in the wild. Uh, in, In modern times, he would be like the man's man. He's crass. He lives by appetite. Esau is a lesson to be careful about our appetites, to be careful that your cravings aren't greater than your love towards God. And it could be food, but it could be wealth and sex, popularity at school or popularity on social media, the approval of others, the comforts of this life. Be careful of your appetites. They can run over your life if not careful. Jacob, on the other hand, is the heel grabber, and his name means deceiver or Cheater. I mean, how about that for a name? Hey, Cheater, your whole life. Hey, Cheater. Not a great name. He comes out of the womb crooked and twisted, grasping after his brother. A running joke in many churches is that you know, if you really want to see original sin up close and personal, just go serve in the nursery on a Sunday morning. Children come out selfish. It doesn't have to be learned. We're born turned in upon the self. Jacob here in verse 27, we, we learn a little bit more about him. It says he was a quiet man who liked living in tents. Now, this doesn't mean Jacob was a recluse. This word quiet means civilized. Jacob was a refined and cultured man. He liked the finer things in life. And, and he wants the birthright because the birthright's gonna help him get what he wants. The birthright, it was given to the oldest son. It ensured being the head of the family, the right of succession, and double portion of the inheritance. A birthright was how you had power, status, and wealth in society. And Walter Brueggemann says the birthright is the linchpin of an entire social and legal system which defines rights and privileges. And Jacob obtaining the birthright is God arranging the blessings in an alternative way. That God overturned conventional power arrangements and gives it to the low and despised. That God pours out grace on the cheater. Now the desire for the birthright's not wrong, but how he goes about getting it is. And God still blesses him. Look at verses 29 to 34. This is, how, this is the story of how Jacob gets the birthright. Esau comes in from hunting and he's hungry. And he says, I'm about to die, which is an exaggeration because there was food available. It's like someone who missed breakfast coming in from being out uh, for the day. And he's like, I'm starving. That's what what Esau's doing. He just wants food immediately. He's driven by his appetite. And Jacob, knowing his brother's impulsiveness and appetite, has a plan. He offers him a bowl of stew for the birthright. And short-sighted, Esau says, okay, despises the birthright, swears to Jacob, sells the birthright to him. And Jacob is manipulative. He's a hard-fasted businessman who doesn't care about the methods of closing the deal as long as the deal is closed. Now, Jacob doesn't lie. He just uses the weaknesses of his brother and drives a hard bargain. He's a cunning businessman. But the seed of sin, though, will grow more fully in Jacob's heart. As later in this story, we will see him lie and steal. Jacob is a warning to all of us that there is a power that lies within all of our hearts that has the power to ruin lives and to ruin our life. So let me say this. We have to keep a close watch on ourselves. Sin that is not repented of escalates. Do not excuse your sin. Oh, it was just a little fudge on a tax return. Oh, it's just a glance at pornography. Oh, it's just a little bit of gossip about that person. Sin not repented of will grow and bear more fruit. Do not make excuses and minimize sin. Repent, identify, name it, and turn from it. Repentance and confession of weakness is the posture of receiving God's grace. This is how we are transformed. This is the way that God untwists the twistedness in us. The Times, a newspaper in London, At one point in the early 1900s posed this question to several prominent authors. What is wrong with the world today? The well-known author G.K. Chesterton responded with one sentence that was printed in the the Times. Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton confesses publicly that he's the most twisted. And he sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul who calls himself the chief of sinners. As a church, we have to be honest about ourselves. Stop trying to pretend to be more than you are. It's out of the confession of brokenness and our need that God pours out grace and he untwists the twistedness and he transforms us. The story of Jacob is a story of grace overcoming human sin and transforming human nature. Jacob is the cheater. He's selfish, manipulative, cunning. We will see even more of that played out in his life. But God is sovereignly at work in unexpected ways in and through twisted people. God grabs a hold of Jacob. Jacob wrestles with God. God gives him a limp by which he will remember his frailty and God's faithfulness for the rest of his life. God seeks Jacob out when Jacob had nothing to give in return. God loves Jacob When it has nothing to do with what he can do. God loves Jacob when he's unlovable. God untwists and transforms Jacob as one coming out of the womb, grabbing the heel of his brother, to the one who is at the end of his life laying his hand on the head of the most powerful person in the world, Pharaoh, and blessing him. God's sovereign grace at work in unexpected ways, in and through twisted people, in order to untwist lives and usher in salvation. And it's through the offspring of Jacob that our elder brother, Jesus, would come into this world. And Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself. He took the form of a servant and gave his life and death on a tree. Jesus' body would be bruised and twisted so that we might be healed and untwisted. Jesus would breathe his last breath in order to breathe his life into us. Jesus would rise from the dead in order to revive us again to life with him. And so I'm excited. I hope you can hear it. I'm excited for us to study the life of Jacob together. Prayerfully, you are now just a little bit more. And I hope you'll keep coming back with us in this series as we all seek to be revived by grace. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would do what only you can do. Breathe your life into us. Pour out your one-way love. Break down any wrong images of you, ways in which we protect, the ways in which we guard. And would you break through with your grace? And would you transform us that we might be more like you and that you might bring blessings to the world? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.